Welcome to episode number six of the Innovators Book Club. In each episode, we take a well-known book on innovation, we discuss it, dissect it, and see what we can learn. In this episode, we're looking at the innovator's DNA. Let's get started. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Innovators uh, Book Club podcast. Today, we are tackling third in the trilogy of the Clayton Christensen uh, epics, the innovator's DNA. Uh, so who we got online? Uh, in Bonn is myself, Tim Woods, and uh, I'm joined by uh, Mitch Meisteon. Hola. <laughs> You'd be on mute, Mitch, but I think we may have heard you. <laughs> Hola. Hola. Hello. Uh, I'm also joined uh, from Boston from Alex. Hello. Hey, Alex. And uh, from Denver, Michael Avis. Hello. Hello. Awesome. Uh, okay, well, let's get started on this. Um, this is an interesting book, uh, certainly to compare with the, the previous two Christensen's uh, books that we've looked at. So this one is the newest. It was released in 2011, and the authors, uh, not just uh, Christensen, but also uh, Jeff Dyer and Hal Gregerson. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about uh, exactly how much input Christensen had to this. And maybe we'll get back to that later. But let, let's look at what the uh, what the book is trying to achieve. Um, it, it's based around a study that they had conducted over a number of years. So, uh, Michael, why don't you give us the background? What What's this book all about? Uh, the background was that they did a study for eight years, as a matter of fact. Um, the whole uh, question they are posing to basically came up from a question they posed to Christensen um, was where where do we find these most innovative companies? Um, what makes an innovation what makes innovative companies innovative to begin with that's that's really the crux of the whole thing because then they started looking around and saying well was it in fact a, a question of individuals and then when they started looking at individuals and saying yes it, it, there's a, a, a clear correlation between the more innovative companies being led by innovative leaders um, then what about those leaders that made them different uh, there's a sort of perception and they kind of talk about this a little bit early in the book as they're setting things up when they're talking about Steve Jobs uh, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, uh, on and on a list AG Laffley um, the, these people seem to um, have been born magically with this uh, innovators DNA if you will to say that you know it's something you are just born with and there it is and it's magic but in fact, what they talk about then going through this and looking at these people is saying there is there are definite things that these people do consistently well that allow them to be good innovators, given us the uh, indication that these things can in fact be learned behaviors and can be brought into your own culture in your own organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the question they're really touching at here is quite a personal one. It's it's are innovators born differently, right? Um, Alex, what, what was your take on that? Right, and I think that is a, a fairly wide consensus that some people are just, you know, genetically dispositioned to be better and more creative at innovation. Um, the authors do state here in the beginning of this book um, that they kind of disagree with that and that through their own study, and they, they point to some studies um, by, done by other people, specifically with, you know, sets of twins, um, but the whole nature versus nurture when it comes to creativity um, that nurture kind of trumps nature and that these skills can be developed and learned over time um, if making a conscious effort to that. Um, 
uh, I think they pointed out that their research was, you know, roughly 500 innovators and was it something like 5,000 um, executives, um, and they, they kind of pick out these five specific discovery skill, skills that can be developed. Um, and again, it's something that some people just are more inclined to do naturally, but again, if you are aware of them and consciously work at them, you can develop them over time to improve your innovation capacity. Mm, yeah, so the bulk of the book is really made up of the, that conclusion that they've they've uncovered these five key skills that really set people apart. So uh, the first question when I opened the book was, what do they mean by DNA? And I think um, their answer is, well, what's the ingredients that goes into making up an innovator and what makes them different? What's that DNA structure look like? And um, it's a strange analogy, I think, but what they're saying is it, it's these five core skills, and the, the skills are associating, questioning, observing, networking, and experimenting. So because that's really the bulk of the book, the really the meat of it, why don't we just dive into those and just see what um, each of those five are? So Mitch, maybe you could tell us about the, the first one, which is associating. Sure. Um, so association is the ability to make new and surprising connections across areas that appear to be unconnected, like uh, knowledge or different industries or even geographies. Um, according to the author's model, the association is the cognitive skill synthesizing um, novel inputs from the other rather behavioral sc uh, discovery skills. So um, all major innovators they follow through this book um, display a superior association skill, like Walt Disney, who reportedly saw himself as a bee in his company, uh, taking ideational pollen from one place to another, inspiring the people who then actually implement stuff at Disney. The authors also provide some suggestions on how to spur association. For example, uh, um, forced association, like uh, imagine microwave features in a dishwasher, or um, taking on the persona uh, from a different company, similar to the bonus six uh, thinking heads, or at least it reminded me of that. Um, or using what-if metaphors, like uh, what if TVs were more like magazines, which in this specific case led to the development of TiVo. And there are a couple of others, too. Right, and that leads into the, the second skill, which is questioning. Um, so asking questions like what if, um, what, you know, what possibilities do we have here? And they start off um, by, by posing the problem. Why, why don't we ask more questions? You know, kids ask questions all day. And I know having, you know, a five-year-old daughter, it's all day long. It's, you know, <laughs> questions about all kinds of stuff. And it's because they're curious, of course. They want to they learn. They want to know more. But the authors say that there are, there are two reasons um, that really stop people asking more questions. And the first one is people don't want to look stupid. There's always a fear that you might ask a really stupid, dumb question like an idiot. Um, I think we can all relate to that. And the, the second one is not willing um, or not wanting to be viewed as uncooperative or disagreeable. And I think both of those are really um, practical problems because, you know, we do have a fear of, of looking stupid, but these innovators, um, these entrepreneurs, they really have, don't have that fear. Like you think of Richard Branson. I mean, he has no fear of just asking, um, you know, posing uh, questions and asking what's possible. And also, um, you know, it's a difficult balance to, to ask questions but not seem disagreeable or seem like a problem person in the room. And I think that is a real challenge. So um, so what do they say? They give some tips um, to how to how to improve your questioning skills. And they give four, four items. And the first one is engaging something called question storming. I wanted to come back to that because it's quite an interesting technique. So we'll park that one for the moment. But the second one is um, cultivate question thinking. So whenever you come up with a statement, how do you translate that into a question? Um, the third one is to track your question and answer ratio. So just take a sample when you're in a meeting, you know, make a list of how many times you're answering something and how many times you're asking questions and try to improve that ratio. And then the fourth one, which is something I like quite a lot, is keep a question-centered notebook. 
So just all these questions that you're asking in all different contexts, um, make a note of them in, in, um, in a book somewhere and then go back and review them to see what kind of questions you're asking, which ones work well, which ones led through uh, to breakthroughs, which ones didn't. I think that's an interesting idea. So um, this also reminded me of another book I read uh, a couple of years ago called A More Beautiful Question, um, The Power of Inquiry to Spark Breakthrough Ideas uh, by Warren Berger. And this book was all about this idea that entrepreneurs ask more questions than, than regular people and it leads to more breakthroughs. Um, I thought that was a pretty good associated sort of reading. So, okay, what's the third one? The third one is um, observing. Uh, Michael, what did, he what did they have to say about observing? Yeah, third discovery skill, observing, observation. Um, this is uh, this this was a very interesting chapter because in many ways this talks about um, uh, what we would typically refer to as just doing market research, but in a much more insightful way in terms of like being an anthropologist, uh, taking that mindset on. They they start with just looking, um, saying that innovators who have strong observation skills are the ones who are always have a different mindset on when they're looking at things, when they see things out there, that the examples they give, um, Tata, uh, the, uh, the Tata car, the Nano, was originally conceived when Tata himself saw a, a family riding on a scooter in the rainstorm, and that emerged into why couldn't they have a, a car that they could afford? And then there's a second part of that is saying, well, then nobody was buying this car, and they had to go out and observe how these people in these rural India villages would purchase anything for their home and everything happened in the marketplace so they had to actually adapt the entire process to what was happening in the environment. A um, couple of other quick examples, uh, Scott Cook and Intuit watching his wife do the the financials in the home and then having this uh, what I called, a, a, what I thought of as being a very serendipitous occasion that he knew somebody who was working at Apple, working on the Lisa project in um, uh, 1984 and saw this ability to take these these you know, routine pieces of financial home checkbook keeping, banking, uh, and put them into a computer program. Um, by the way, they, nobody talks about that serendipitous part and hope we come back to that at some point because you have to have some of these moments of luck of being in the right place, I think. Uh, the other, a couple of other quick ones was the uh, research medical about uh, there's a, a watching surgeons um, ha struggling with different ways to remove blood from the, 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 the during surgery and get light on a cut and, and, and so on and uh, just came up with some tools for being able to do that job better. Um, and then P&G, A.G. Laffley, um, renowned for being out in the field. Um, some of the things that came up here were basically uh, getting out there, having innovative executives, being these observational people who just went out in the world, um, some of the, you know, looking for surprises, always keeping your eyes and ears open, um, do things like uh, change your environment, travel to foreign countries. Uh, these these things are key for putting yourself in the space for being able to be open to observations and uh, at the end they did they do offer, uh, offer like four major uh, elements for as tips recommendations uh, for sharpening the skills um, observe customers which is we, we everybody talks about that but how do you do it uh, they keep hip hammering on the job to be done aspect of this piece so uh, uh, observing customers observe other companies 
Um, observe whatever strikes your fancy. In other words, just being aware, having your eyes open all the time, and then observe with all your senses—your ears, your feelings, uh, you know, anything that uh, you're, you know, all any smells, sights, sounds, all that stuff. So that's that's the wrap on on observation. Yeah, and you mentioned an um, important point there about luck, and I think that skill number four is quite critical to that. So creating luck, creating more opportunities, comes down. A lot to networking and the amount of people you meet and the opportunities you create that um, via those uh, those people. So, um, Alex, why don't you tell us a, a bit about networking, skill number four? Sure. So, I think most people are familiar with the idea of networking um, as it relates to business, but this is more of a an idea networking specific. Whereas your typical networking, um, people do you know to sell themselves or their companies, to boost their careers, um, to access specific resources. Uh, but this idea of idea networking is is more to build bridges to different areas of knowledge um, by interacting with people with different backgrounds and perspectives um, to you know broaden your own knowledge um, and look for new ideas um, where no one else has looked thought to look for before. Um, people do this actively tap into new ideas and insights um, by talking with people from different educational backgrounds, um, people from different countries, industries, uh, business functions, uh, who are different ages, ethnic backgrounds, and on and on, just as, as broad um, of group as possible. Um, and, th and this kind of networking can provide unique insights um, from unexpected places um, into your own business um, and what problem or challenge you're facing at that time. Um, back to, to Michael's point about this, this serendipitous effect, uh, the author points out that in roughly half of the cases they studied where new ideas came through networking, the entrepreneurs simply just stumbled upon the idea. They weren't looking for it. Um, one example um, was just somebody at a barbecue talking with someone and in the discussion, something came up that solved a specific problem that he was having at work. Um, so that whole idea of just getting um, as broad a knowledge and uh, networking as broadly as possible and then simply stumbling upon ideas is, is really crucial to this and really a part of that. Um, similarly, you take the current problem you're having and look outside of your organization or industry and just ask um, who's faced this problem before or a similar problem before and look to see who has the answer. Um, again, one example of that was uh, CPS Technologies, which make, uh, what was it, ceramic composites. And in some problem they were having, I think it was dispersing some type of sub-micron materials, past my knowledge. Um, but they went to an expert at Polaroid and, and got the answer for their problem there. So completely separate um, field of industry, but um, was able to solve their problem through that. Um, and again, similarly, he gives some examples of how you can, you know, make yourself better and kind of introduce yourself into this idea networking. Um, there's conferences such as the, the TED conferences and other idea networking events that you can attend to that are whole, built around this whole concept of idea networking. Um, but he also says just traveling to different countries, meeting new people, talking to, to people in industries you're unfamiliar with, just anything and everything you can to get yourself out there um, and make a point to just trying new things and meeting new people are all great ways to, to really create this diverse group of people that you know and your own little idea network that you can go to for advice, to, to ask questions about a particular problem or just to, to try to spark new ideas. Mm, yeah, and uh, skill number five is um, this, this is a real theme that's been coming up in all the books we're looking at and that's experimentation. I remember the Lean Startup and the Innovative Solution as well both mentioned this heavily, that you need to experiment, really. You need to try many things um, and prototype rapidly. 
So, um, so Mitch, tell us about uh, skill number five, experimenting. So yeah, as I said, um, it's one of my favorite passages uh, since we're just here about the need to test, probe, incubate, prototype MVPs from from everywhere, basically, all kinds of sources and people talk about it, and uh, we heard about it also recently on our forum, actually. Um, however, for the authors, this is only one of the three meetings of experimenting. Uh, the other, the uh, two others being um, trying out new experiences and taking apart products, processes, and ideas. So the interesting thing about new experiences is that just doesn't make sense from a purely delivery-driven perspective. Changes are, um, chances are high or at least unpredictable that will never pay off. However, a background, um, a broad background, or many things you have experienced uh, might actually help with, uh, to come up with uh, one thing nobody else thought, uh, thought about at a point in time. For example, we have uh, Steve Jobs taking calligraphy uh, classes, uh, which eventually led to the first Macintosh being able to produce documents with nice uh, typography. Taking things apart is exemplified by Michael Dell, who reportedly took his uh, his brand new Apple II computer apart on his uh, 16th birthday, just to learn about the way it worked. And he soon learned so much about computer components that their um, uh, and their individual prices that he came up with a direct from Dell business model, where he delivered custom configured computers at a fraction of the retail store price. Yeah. And again, the authors um, propose different ways of developing these new experimentary uh, discovery skills. Um, for example, living in another country, build actually build prototypes yourself, go transporting, and a couple of others again. So this is really a, cru a crucial thing. And um, um, yeah, as I said earlier, it's it's it really comes across our our uh, our way here uh, from a lot of different sources. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so those are the five skills, associating, questioning, observing, networking, experimenting. And then sort of in the, the last third of the book, uh, the second half, they start to talk about other aspects. Um, and one is this idea of uh, leadership styles um, between discovery-driven and delivery-driven. So delivery-driven is that classic leadership style of just getting it done and um, being very process-orientated. But discovery-driven is much more of this entrepreneurial questioning and observing and trying to figure out what the right solution is. Um, Michael, how important are these two skills in the idea life cycle? And is one more important than the other? No, they're not one more important than the other. Of course, the book is focusing on discovery skills. Everything we just listed out is, is in fact, a discovery skill. So innovative leaders possess these discovery skills. I think the focus is on the book is saying that you have to have these to be innovative, and they can be learned behaviors. That's important. However, um, there are places where you need to actually be able to deliver. So it becomes a sort of like where the weight is all on discovery. There are plenty of places where they, they back up a step and say you still have to be able to do delivery and execution. So so there is a balance that they're trying to achieve there. Um, the, the one thing that becomes problematic is that when you think you're doing discovery as an executive and you're not. Uh, they, they, that's one of the things later in the book that they talk about um, if you classify yourself as a great leader or classify yourself as a great innovator but you're actually more inclined to um, be delivery focused which is very very typical in, in corporate organizations where you've been rewarded for delivering throughout your your whole career and then you get promoted for that and move up the, the, uh, the corporate ladder the interesting thing is that they point out they've come up with some things like the innovators dna.com there's some tests on there for three for 360 degree assessments on um, discovery skills versus um, 
delivery skills where they actually are able to say give yourself a score which I thought these are nice tools to be able to lean on the other the other tool um, that they kind of point to where this you know where the some of these thoughts process came from was this um, a premium index for innovation companies uh, typically what happens when a comp a, a, a uh, an outlet like business business week creates the top 25 innovative companies of the year um, they tend to be done on popularity more and reputation more than actual any kind of metrics so these guys came up with a way to create a score that's more in line with what we think of uh, proactively being innovative using you know these this metrics of the innovative uh, innovators with their DNA and the ability to have discovery backgrounds um, and then be able to deliver that they've come up with a, a much more um, broad matrix I think a robust matrix if you will for coming up with scores and then tying that to leadership in general so are are you on that scale do you have those scores Do you have those capacities and all that comes back to is this balance of discovery and, and delivery that they're actually at the end of uh, the end of the day looking to achieve mm. yeah okay so innovation culture is something that's talked about a lot um, today and how you foster an innovation culture particularly in large organizations um, so how important is it um, that leaders demonst demonstrate these skills uh, and, and how does that play into innovation culture, Mitch? So um, discovery-driven leaders, according to the authors, are absolutely crucial to make the uh, innovators' DNA work. Um, the authors' standard examples all exemplify this perfectly. For example, um, Steve Jobs always communicates in what if and why questions. Salesforce.com's Mark uh, Benioff leads by example as a great networker. And this is a pattern the authors see uh, throughout leading innovative companies. And because innovative leaders excel at discovery skills, they value them in others so much that in turn, others within the organization feel that reaching top executive positions requires personal innovation capability. And it is this expectation that forces an innovation focus throughout the company. It's a simple thing in the end. It's uh, people copy people. And uh, the, also, the authors also sampled top executive without innovation record for comparison and found that these guys, while highly effective at um, delivery and still above average in discovery skill, hire for delivery. And delivery is what, what's being valued, led by their example, leading to delivery-focused company DNA. To give just one example, during Jobs' tenure from uh, 1980 to uh, 1985, Apple enjoyed an innovation premium of 37%. With Jobs gone, it dropped to minus 31%. With Jobs back in action, surrounding himself with a new discovery-driven management, it went through the roof to 52%. So yes, you can indeed say um, senior executives leading by example are a crucial component for implementing the innovator's DNA in a company. Yeah, right. And I was pretty struck by how strong this point was made by the authors. They were really saying, look, there's no excuse. If you really want your company to demonstrate you know, experimentation skills or... Uh, prototyping skills, then you have to do it yourself. You can't delegate these kind of things. They're so crucial to the, the fabric of the company, um, which I thought was pretty pretty interesting. Um, so I wanted to jump back to one of the points um, listed under the questioning um, section. There's this idea of question storming, a very practical way to help increase everyone's ability to, um, to ask more questions. So Alex, can you just tell us what question storming is and how it works? Sure. Um, question storming, um, similar to you know, the brainstorming session um, that, you know, a lot of people are familiar with. But instead of focusing on finding a solution for a problem, um, you brainstorm questions and only questions uh, about the problem. 
And by focusing your collective energies on only asking questions about the problems, um, you kind of dig deeper into the fundamental elements of the challenge, um, which then can open people's eyes to a new understanding of the problem and lead to further insights. Um, the idea is to ask you know, the, the what is, what caused, why and why not, uh, what if kind of questions um, without thinking about a solution. So to do this, um, you would first identify a problem or a challenge. Um, it can be personal, work, organizational related, um, whatever. Um, and then you write down, a, the author says, at least 50 questions about the problem or challenge. Um, they should be generated one at a time. If you're doing them as a group, you should be written down um, on a whiteboard or something so that everyone involved can see and think about each question as it's being asked. Um, and you shouldn't ask a new question until the last one is completely written down. Um, and then finally, once you're completed and all these questions have been written down, the team can prioritize them and discuss the most important ones or the most intriguing questions. Um, so this, again, it's a good tool to help you think about a problem or challenges um, and find a solution in a more innovative way. Um, the authors go on to claim that individuals who frequently engage in personal question stormings about challenges um, faced in their personal or work lives are, are most more likely to be viewed as creative or innovative within their organization. Yeah, and I really like question storming. It relates to what we do um, here at Hype. So you could run a, an idea campaign just to collect questions, for example. It doesn't have to be ideas. It could just be, okay, everyone, let's put in a question each to try and analyze this situation. Um, so I like that one very much. So, okay, no innovation book would be complete without some kind of framework being mentioned. So there's one near the end called the three P's framework. Um, uh, Mitch, can you tell us what that is, what the three P's are? Well, pretty simply put, um, it's people, processes, and guiding philosophies. Uh, regarding people, it means that um, the company is guided by senior executives with a discovery quotient of above uh, 75%. They're very precise in this respect. Uh, and their, um, their job is uh, to monitor and maintain an adequate proportion of high discovery quotient people at every management level and functional area. Regarding processes, it means... Um, Processes explicitly encourage employees to lift the discovery skills and thereby are designed to hire, train, reward, and promote discovery-driven people. And the four guiding philosophies they mention are, first, uh, innovation is everyone's job, not just R&Ds. Then uh, disruption is part of the portfolio. Then third, uh, deploy small, properly organized innovation project teams. And the fourth one is take smart risks, which takes us back to the experimental part. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the third in the so-called Christiansen trilogy, right? Um, and we've done the previous two over the last couple of months. Um, they feel a lot more in-depth than this one. This one feels like a much lighter book. Um, so I wonder, does this really, does it really continue on the disruption thread that's um, begun in, in the other two? Um, Michael, what do you think? Do you think this is a break from it or a continuation? I think it's a uh, complementary piece. That's what I was thinking about that as well. That it's it's interesting. Um, it's not it's not really uh, core Christensen material, but it's sort of a, a tangent that's that becomes important because if you know without going into the details of the previous two, we've already kind of covered those. The the first one being theoretical framework about disruption, what it means to organizations. The second saying, well, what can you do as a solution theory, or not even theory, but academic practice, or not even, I keep saying that, not theory, not academic, but actually pragmatic practice. What can you do to deal with disruption? The third, this this is a third one, obviously emerges as, as an ongoing question that we talked about at the very beginning. 
there there are definitely people who would say, well, gee, that's really nice, you know, to say there's a solution set there. But I look over the fence and I see Apple and I see Amazon, I see you know P and G, and they're always innovative, and we just don't seem to have that. Why not? I think that's where it really emerges from. Is saying, is there sort of a magic, you know? You know, fountain of innovation that some companies drink from and others don't, and so it's complementary, but it's definitely not in the same um, core elements of, of Christensen's frameworks. So yeah, I would agree with this. Um, so for me, it struck me immediately when I started started reading it, while. When we read the um, innovators' dilemma, it was like all all about thinking different, right? This was the first time somebody was taking this um, scientific approach towards uh, towards an issue that was uh, previously thought of some some something out of control that you cannot really um, that you cannot really plan on. Then on the second one, the innovative solution we reviewed last time, he really gives some very specific um, guidance on how to tackle this. Problem: How to act on it, right? And now in this, uh, in the DNA, we actually are faced with how you have to be. So the first one is really about think different. The second one, act different. The uh, third one, be different, right? And this is actually the issue I'm having with this book. But I'm, I think we'll come back to the issues later on. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that struck me a little bit is the tone of voice in this book is a little different. I don't want to get into too much literary criticism or whatever. But the question for me is. Is Christensen really involved in this book? Because it sounded different. Everything felt very different to the previous two, which were much more academic. Um, Alex, what do you think? Do you think that this is Christensen's name alone on this book, really? Yeah, I, I kind of agree on that. I mean, that struck me right away, actually, when I started reading this, too. It didn't really sound like Christensen based on um, my experience from his other two books. Um, I mean, even if you look at the the book uh, cover. I mean, his name's listed um, with the other two authors, but it's third. So I, I really don't know how much of his influence is in this, or it's just more his name and, hey, this is what we're going to do. Do you agree, or is there anything advice that you would provide for us as we're writing this? Mm, yeah, okay. Hey, hey Tim, uh, and this is actually, I, I, I you know, I'm I understand when you talk about the voice and you know the likeness of Christensen in here. This is an over eight-year period. It's it's very interesting to take that as part of the political dynamic under underscoring this. They spend eight years talking to all these people. They're collating this data with some kind of, I, I assume, some sort of premise in mind to understand why innovative companies are more innovative. Um, it just begs the question of, you know, where was Christian? It's almost like, well, maybe Christian was the advisor on almost something like a, an, MBA, an MBA thesis, you know what I mean? That's what uh, it feels like to me. Yeah, I would you know, agree like with check, you. I would agree with Especially you. since the duration and the level of, of things that they're covering, right? Yeah, and it's not necessarily a criticism of the book to say that he's not really fully involved, but it, it just it just felt very different to me. And, and these three are put together, in a marketing way at least, from the publisher's point of view, as a trilogy, right? You can buy the three of them uh, together. So, yeah. And, and yeah, I would uh, I would definitely agree. The voice is um, really different, but I think in a positive way. So for all these three books, from all these three books, I found this one the, uh, the, the best accessible because... Um, the structure already gives away so much of the content, right? You, as a as a reader, you are really guided through this book. You immediately learn how where where this journey is going to, and that was quite different. I mean, the innovators uh, with the other ones. So uh, the innovator's solution already was accessible, still very academical, and the innovator's dilemma was really a, a tough read. It was a thick book. Yeah, 
really a thesis. So I enjoyed reading this one, uh, this this book a lot. Really, it was from from a pure reader's perspective, what was much more engaging and also accessible, as I said. Well, I think we well, think one of the things that ha helps do exactly that, and I don't disagree, Mitch. I think you're right on something there. The interesting thing is that in the dilemma, I mean, so much effort put into um, hard drives, right? And then you, you know, well, how much do we give to actually explain the hard drive industry? But enough to, we have to be very thorough because it's, it's, re, it's really going to make our case. The other side of this, this, these case studies here are anecdotal. I mean, these these quotes from Steve Jobs, these quotes from Meg Whitman at eBay, uh, Scott Cook at Intuit, um, Mark Benioff. They're, they're, um, you know, not not to be denigrating, but bumper sticker stuff. It's there's there's a fun element and the and a very lightweight approach to just make the point consistently how these innovators think and look and you know look at the world how they think about the world how they engage with you know their company and their passions um, these stories are less about hardcore product information or service engagement and much more about um, you know, just sort of a, you know, try this, do this, look at this, see this, here's this story. This, it is very anecdotal approach. I thought that was easier, and, and you use the word access, I would totally agree with that. It makes the access easy when you have these little nuggets of stories. Hmm. So I wonder if, um, how holistic are these three books taken together, and are we missing anything? You know, one question that, um, you know, if they were going to write a fourth book, for example, what, what could they focus on? Uh, and I'm sure they're thinking about that. But one, one question in my mind is a lot of, particularly the first two books, they're heavily concentrated on the senior executive who has the power to really change things. And I compare it to something like the Lean Startup, whereas that can definitely be applicable to the larger organization, but it's really focused on the individual and the smaller startup size companies. So is there anything that they could do um, that's missing, maybe? Michael, anyone? Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I was thinking about that. Right? A couple different directions of thought uh, actually occurred to me about. Um, one is exactly that. You know, you know, is there a broader audience that they might be thinking of reaching? Is there a way to bring this to more middle management, more larger organization? I agree. On the the lean startup seems to be like you can apply this anywhere. You can have entrepreneurial. Uh, efforts going on across your organization. It doesn't feel that way necessarily from these three books. I think, you know, um, uh, tang sidebar here is that they do raise the education element in the observing discovery skill. They, they raise the education uh, factor. What's the job we're trying to do with education and why is everybody frustrated with it? And then ironically, you know, the next book that comes out is uh, a disruptive classroom book, right, applying Christensen theory to the uh, state of education. So while these are a trilogy, there are plenty of other books that are trying to uh, use these kinds of thoughts, but are they actually, in fact, ap applicable to greater organizations? And, that, I th you know, in some cases, the, these three, the jury is definitely out. Um, the other side of that is, Relevance. You mentioned that this is 2012 or 20 or 2011 uh, release. It's the newest book of these three. Um, and even then, I'm, from a relevance cultural historical way, we've we've talked about in the other podcasts about some some elements don't make any sense anymore. There's still heavy reliance, for example, on research in motion and 
it, it becomes problematic when you look at what where research in motion has even gone in the last five years. I mean, just basically, honestly, if you tell somebody that you support BlackBerry and your software as a mobile, there's Snickers on the other side of the phone, right? Um, the uh, another case is that now there's a big uproar just last year, last fall, about the culture at Amazon. So if we're saying you know we're holding this up as a a lighthouse for how you run your culture and everybody's given the opportunity to be innovative and then there's huge question marks raised in a New York Times article. Um, it's just it's one of those things where how much of this becomes political, how much of this is the marketing from you know the face of the organization being being what Jobs was to Apple and where are they now? Uh, is is you know is Tim Cook in fact um, more delivery guy after all? That's the kind of questions. So from a historical perspective, is there a place where you'd pull these things together in something uh, maybe similar to the things that? Um, uh, you know what Jim Collins is doing, for example, in in going back and doing additional complementary studies to the original Good to Great. So it would be interesting at some point to see that a more historical perspective pulled together in a updated works. Yeah, I totally agree on that point. And um, one thing I'd love to see, and it doesn't have to be a book, but an article that really tackles new what are perceived as innovation. Um, products or companies and I know he's touched on Uber and said it's, it doesn't fit his model of disruptive innovation um, but you know what about Instagram WhatsApp Facebook all of these digital um, uh, organizations and products that weren't really around in the same level um, when he first wrote the dilemma so I'd love to see just an article from Christian himself and really tests a bunch of these you know sort of really well-known companies and Google as well I mean I haven't seen much about Google from Christensen so I'd find that very interesting so maybe we can look at um, some criticisms of the book and I'll start off just by saying and this is a general criticism of so many business books is they often start from what is a great article and this did as well there's a really good HBR article that summarizes the innovators DNA why does everyone have to then expand it into a 300 page book the article was great you know and of course I know the answer but <laughs> it just bears repeating. Does it really have to, you know, do we really have to make it this hard work for everybody? Uh, any other criticisms or any points on that? So, yeah, I, my, my, biggest, my biggest problem is with the, the, well, the basic, the underlying assumption here is for the entire book and probably the article as well, that uh, you can just uh, develop this kind of DNA. And my point is you probably can't actually because they, they, they dedicate an entire page <laughs> in this whole book. They, entire, they, they dedicate a single page to this issue and they say, do you have to be Steve Jobs? No, you don't have to be Steve Jobs. Everybody, everybody can learn this. And they, they even have a single example of a person who was actually able to learn something. However, <laughs> that is, I, I would clearly say it's just, it's just not easily possible. So. People change, but very rarely so. And if they do change, they change very slowly. And I'm not convinced that you can actually become an innovator. You've got to be an innovator of some stage or to a degree at least. So um, the po the point is that you once you are an innovator of some degree, you can certainly improve with the suggestions they give you. But if you're not that type of person, how would you become that? I've, I just don't see that happen. Hmm. That's interesting because at that level, it's it's almost a self-help book, and it's funny because you know how many times you go to a Tony Robbins type of thing or something like that, and you or you see it on TV, and everybody's oh, yeah, you know, it's like you know, it's like intellectual Chinese food. An hour later, you went, wait, what? 
I'm still hungry. Um, you know, the, the the whole thing is. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, Mitch. I see. I see that uh, it's. You know, I've seen. I've seen things where people have been able to change, where people have been able to adapt. I think though, what it does is fill a core need as as a. You know, as 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 a work. You know, to say it's like taking that HBR. Article. I think I think Tim's really on to something to just say, can't we just stay with the article? <laughs> but I, I think what happens is people do want more. I mean people are saying like, okay, we we're trying this innovator solution stuff and we're just we're just struggling. What can you guys do and come in and talk about, well, okay, how can you make us like Apple? Well, how can I be more like Steve Jobs? I think it fills this place where at least people are trying to do something. I think the the worst case thing is where you're where you're you know the the definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing, expecting different results, right, Einstein? Um, I think that that's really what what what's at play here is that if you can maybe get in the door early with a library of these types of books, and I think you have to take them all into account. I think you have to you know bring lean startup methodologies in. Um, where I just was on site, um, they are doing these things all the time as part of their culture to try to just make it more available, more awareness is the first place because, you know, um, you, you walk in an innovation program and and people on the team have never heard of crowdsourcing or lean, six sigma, or lean, lean startup strategy stuff or Six Sigma approaches and stuff like that. I totally agree I, um, uh, with you in this case. If you could like raise children with this mindset, basically, or educate them at school early on with these uh, with uh, these things, that would actually turn them into innovators, and they're ready to do that in their job later on. However, this uh, book being targeted as business people, like ready grown up people, right? How how would they change in their in their forties or whatever? No, <laughs> so, uh, but that's that's why consultants have jobs, Mitch. It's, it's what they, <laughs> <laughs> come in, we're dying. Help us fix this. <laughs> but it's, part of it is awareness. I think you're onto something. It's like if you if you think of it, you know, waving a magic wand and just say, now everybody just go work on these five discovery skills, and magically next year you're all be innovators. That's not really true. We don't really believe that, and that's part of why they need delivery-driven aspects as well. You have to. And that's why you know when, when Tim posed that question earlier is, look, they, you know, they're back. They 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 backpedal from the beginning away from delivery, and then at the end they come back and say, look, you know, yeah, all the focus is on innovators being discovery-driven, but you still have to deliver. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, for me, it's it is a challenge. These books, when you're dealing at the personal level, you say, okay, how can I take this and improve my own skills? But where I think it can be useful is if a leader says, you know what, hey, all of you guys in this team, you're going to read this book, and we're going to try and adopt these together. Then I think it's actually it reinforces itself a lot more. If you say as a team, you know, we're going to start using question storming once a week, or whenever a big problem comes up, we're going to use that technique. Um, we're going to put these five skills up on the board and constantly reinforce. Look. Are we applying these skills when we're in meetings, when we're you know, working together? Then I think it can be really useful. I think at an individual level, it is, it is really hard because you, you move on to the next book and you get a bunch of new advice. and <laughs> It's hard to make yeah, it totally stick. totally agree. Yeah. So I'm pretty interested, actually. This, book, this book's interesting for us as a group of people because I think we should try and use some of these techniques and see how we can make them stick because I think they're right. If you apply these five core skills, 
um, they do make a difference. And I love the idea, I think you mentioned it a minute ago, Mitch, about schools having these um, reinforced these skills. I think for children, these are great, you know, and to actually say to children, look, you know, let's focus on these five different skills and, and keep applying them throughout your education. That's, that's perfect. Um, but of course, children are great at these, naturally, all five of these, they, they have those inclinations for them anyway. Maybe not networking so much, that depends on the child, but the other, the other four, definitely. Um, so, okay, let's, let's, um, let's go around the room and just see, uh, maybe we start with Alex. Has this book influenced you a little bit? Are you going to try and um, adopt some of these points um, that they raised? Yeah, I think um, it's definitely good concepts to think about it, it's even just to keep into the back of your mind um, as you go about your, you know, your daily thing, you know, work and if you come across a particular problem, just to, to go back to that and say, oh, how can I apply these things um, if you're stuck or something. So I, I think it's definitely useful and, and something to, to keep there. Um, so I, I mean, I would, de I would definitely recommend it to people. I mean, even just for um, an awareness thing, just to be aware of these these things because they, they are useful, again, depending on how much you apply them and how much you will, you know, grow is not like we were talking about earlier. It's not going to magically turn you into this great innovator, but it's definitely a useful um, concepts to to be aware of and just to kind of keep in your mind. Yeah. Okay. But so, so you would definitely recommend it. But let me just check: Are you honestly going to take away some of these things and try and improve them yourself? Or you yeah, I, I do like the, the, especially the question storming. I mean, you, you, I talked about that earlier, but I do like that and think that's useful, even if not that specific question storming, just, but just in general asking more questions about things and, and different kinds of questionings. I, I, I really look like that, that point especially. Mm, yeah, okay. Um, because I keep thinking about the Lean Startup that we read a few months ago, and there's so many great tactics in there, like the five whys and stuff. And I think, oh, you know, we need to remember to use these. You know, we need visual cues to remind us, okay, when in this situation, bring out these tools or whatever. Um, so, Mitch, how about you? Would you recommend this? And, and is there anything you, you're personally going to take away from this? I would certainly recommend it uh, for the same reason Alex just mentioned, uh, because you just need to be aware of these facts. And I, th I think facts they are, uh, even if they are hard to implement. And I would also agree with you that um, as a team you can implement this. And if, especially if, if, uh, if the team lead leads by... Uh, example basically, then um, it's actually possible. And um, I think if you just take our marketing team here, I think we are already enough discovery driven that we have a solid basis to work this out, right? To to improve on this. And uh, indeed, we should probably install some um, whatever visual, some some cues, whatever, uh, to to get us using these um, these techniques more often. Um, so yes, I would recommend it. Uh, I think it's a useful book. It's, as I said, it's easily accessible too. You can read it quickly, and you have a great. They give you a great structure. It's easy to look stuff up once you forgot about it. You just get into it really soon again. Um, so yes, clear recommendation from my side. Yeah, good point. Actually, it is laid out pretty well. So it's a book you can easily come back to and just you know get a quick refresher. It's well put together, I think. Um, uh, Michael, uh, what's your take from Denver? Well, I've got some uh, thoughts on this. I think I think we, uh, yes, I definitely would recommend it. More probably, I'd probably recommend this wonderful podcast. People should just listen to this, and they'll go, got it. Okay. <laughs> Great That's point. key. I agree. And uh, the other thing, but, but it's interesting because I know, like I said earlier, and just to, I, I want to be very clear about emphasizing that, it's it's interesting because the whole emphasis has to be on discovery and what makes innovative companies 
led by innovative leaders, more innovative on a consistent basis. Um, they, you know, that's why it's important to have tools and scorecards for saying, yes, in fact, these are innovative things. But there is that caveat, and I think it's very important for us to, when we are making those recommendations that at the end of the day, you still have to execute. It's just a question of saying when you're not executing as well and you're saying we're going to lean on innovation to help us to get, you know, get our company turned around if we're struggling, if we're in a commodity business in the market where the prices are down, so we're feeling that and we're cutting things back and, and stuff like that. For example, if you were Puerto Rico this week, um, what could you do to be more innovative? Um, you'll have to, you, you will say, well, we need to do something different because it's not worth Here is the place where you have to recognize that has to be part of the, the organization. You can bring these kinds of tools in, but you can bring in other tools as well. These are not in a, in a vacuum sorts of things. And, and that's, I think that's one clear thing that I would tell people. Don't, you know, just because it, it's the, you know, 90% of the book is about how wonderful discovery skills are, and they are. They actually do, you know, they do mention the fact that you have to execute and that also take, don't, you know, take it with a grain of salt that this is not something that happens in a vacuum. Look around your organization, find out what tools work best for you, find out what knowledge is not being shared and built that you might, you know, take advantage of that you haven't to you haven't had previously taken advantage of and you know just always being aware that at the end of the day it's not enough to just have aha moments or do lots of experiments and fail 10,000 times at the end of the day you actually have to find the one that works yeah very good so uh, I would agree with everything people have said and I think it's interesting we this is our sixth book now and we haven't come across any stinkers yet I mean these are all good books and it's just a varying degree of how useful they are um, I like this book a lot, and actually this discussion has kind of reinvigorated it a little, a little bit for me. I'm, I'm pretty interested to go back and say, you know what, really, come on, let's try and implement some of these uh, these methodologies. They're, they're pretty good. Um, okay, well, I think that uh, brings it to a close. It's a good discussion. So next time we're going to shift a little bit um, to a more historical book. Uh, uh, well, it's not historical. It's a, it's a new book, relatively, but... Um, it's more of a less practical one, I think. So it's where good ideas come from, from Stephen Johnson. So we'll meet again in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks, guys. It's bye from Bon, from me. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.